0: We're going to look at an account this evening as we're going through this series on uh, sinners and saints. We're looking at various people in the scripture um, that have been submitted to me, and I've sort of gone through the big list and picked out some of them, and uh, we've gone through a lot of different names and a lot of some unnamed people, and today is another unnamed person, um, the, uh, the lame man who's healed at the uh, Pool of Bethsaida, or Bethesda, whichever way you want to read it or pronounce it. And um, so we're looking in the book of John. It's in John chapter 5 that we have this account. And one of the things that we have to understand when we're reading the book of John is why John wrote his book, why John wrote his gospel. And it's, it's good to keep in mind because it helps us understand why he picks certain accounts to tell. So it's helpful that in the gospel of John, John actually tells us why he wrote his gospel. Uh, in John 20, uh, right near the end, John 20, 30 to 31, he says... Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why John wrote his gospel, so that we could know that Jesus was God and that we would believe in him and have life for believing in him. And so John has chosen the accounts because he said there's so many of them it could fill up many more books, but he's chosen these accounts because he understands that the incidents and the accounts that he's describing in his gospel highlight the identity of Jesus as Messiah and that if we recognize the spiritual significance of the accounts of Jesus' life that John tells that we can then identify Jesus as the one who saves and then we can come to trust in Jesus and then we can enjoy the transforming healing redeeming life that's possible in Jesus. That's that's what John wants. He wants us to see Jesus for who he is and that's why he's chosen to record this particular account in John chapter 5 that we're going to look at. This this crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, he receives new life from Jesus. He receives the physical sign of the new life in the healing of his broken body, but his body's not the chief concern of Jesus, as we'll see a little further in the account. But instead, Jesus wants him completely healed, physically and spiritually and eternally. Now, now, when this is actually happening, when this account is taking place, as John is with Jesus, he probably didn't understand what he does as he writes this gospel later. The disciples were notoriously obtuse as to what was actually taking place and who Jesus was. They didn't really know who he was most of the time or the significance of what he was teaching. It kind of went over their head. It's only after Jesus confirmed his identity as the Messiah in his death and resurrection that it really dawned on the disciple John and dawned on the rest of the disciples of who they were with. And then they wrote their Gospels afterwards... They recorded what they had seen, and John is now seeing with new eyes the spiritual significance of what Jesus did at the pool that day, and why the Pharisees responded to him the way that they did. And so I just want to sort of set that frame, because with this in mind, we'll have some insight why John's picked out accounts such as this one in chapter 5, and their purpose in teaching, uh, in, in Jesus using them in his teaching ministry. They're to know the identity of Jesus, to literally see the hope that he's offering to everyone who's broken and unable to save themselves, and to be saved by trusting in him, receiving new life. That's why Jesus did it. That's why John recorded it. And so Jesus puts this on display very clearly in his interaction with this crippled man who had basically lain on the streets of Jerusalem very publicly for over 30 years. That's where we sort of pick it up. And I'm going to go through uh, John 5, 1 to 18, and as I go through, we'll kind of illustrate uh, what Jesus is unpacking for us or illustrating in this account. Uh, Let me just pray before we read. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle John and his recording of his experience with you and that he has, by your Holy Spirit, saved these accounts for us and illuminated uh, in his retelling the spiritual significance of what you had done and what it means for us. Uh, the recipient of this message and the recipient of your grace intended through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 5, 1 to 18, our focus is on this crippled man and basically how Jesus uses this unnamed, broken man who is lame uh, to teach us and teach the world, really, about who he is and why he's come. So it says in John 5, verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, or House of Mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. So this is the scene. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem. There's a feast. The city's full of people who are there for the feasting, and there is a pool there, which has these five colonnades. Now, it's worth noting that until the 19th century, there was no evidence outside of the Gospel of John that this pool existed. And the fact that there was no evidence of this pool was actually used as evidence to make the argument that the Gospel of John, therefore, was not actually written by John. It was written by somebody many decades later who really didn't have any firsthand knowledge of the city of Jerusalem, and this was all just made up. But then in the 60s, archaeologists discovered the remains of a pool by the sheep gate with five colonnades exactly fitting John's description. So it seems that the gospel was written when it was written and by whom it said it was written by after all, by the guy who was standing there with Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida with five colonnades. And so to also understand what's happening here is you also need to know that the waters of this pool by the sheep gate would, in Jesus' day, would sometimes stir up. They would get, you know, there'd be a ripple, there'd be a current, they would get troubled somehow, and it was believed that an unseen angel stirred up the waters at those times and at those occasions, if you were the first into the water, there was the possibility that you might be healed or receive some comfort. And so there is many crippled people and lame people, blind people at the pool of Bethsaida for those reasons. So it goes on in verse 3. It says, In these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So the first thing that John highlights in this account as he remembers this is the complete inability of the man to save himself. He's been an invalid. He's been paralyzed somehow. Uh, it's been 38 years, and when the water stirs up... Uh, there's a sign that there could be healing he gets his hope up but he can't get into the pool in time and so even this small hope of mercy is beyond his own ability to grasp he's essentially powerless in his brokenness he's powerless to receive the mercy that's right there in front of him and and as john tells this story we begin to pick up that similar to um hosea and gomer that this is another living parable that God is putting on display with real people. It's a living parable that John describes for us of the helplessness of the human condition. And at the same time, this man is surrounded by blind and lame people. And he's apparently about the worst of everyone there. He's been there for 30 some odd years, stuck begging on the streets without being able to get healed. But... It's to this man that Jesus comes. It's to this man who's been there for 38 years, maybe the worst of all of them, the most broken, the most lame, the most unable. This is the man that Jesus comes to and Jesus puts his attention on this man. It says there's many lame and blind and paralyzed people there, but Jesus puts his attention by his own free will on this particular man. And so we see here that that Jesus offers his gift to people who have done nothing to merit it. And he gives it to anyone, as broken as they may be. The hopelessness of the man's condition does not disqualify him from Jesus' grace. He's he's done nothing to make himself stand apart from anybody else. He's just a broken man in Jesus' path. Matthew 9, 11 to 13, another time when Jesus is doing his ministry in front of the Pharisees and he's eating with different people that you wouldn't normally think you would be associated with, the Pharisees see this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so the the first thing that we notice in this sort of living parable is that This man is completely helpless, and that Jesus puts his attention and his grace and his mercy on this man through no particular qualification of the man at all. He is unable to help himself, and yet Jesus has come for him. And then secondly, in this little section of the story, we have this very odd and penetrating question of Jesus. He asks the man, do you want to be healed? Now, it seems like a pretty strange question, right, when you hear that. Okay, so there's, there's no accessibility ramps in Jerusalem, right? There's no lifts, there's no elevators, there's no you know, wheelchair ramps, there's not even wheelchairs in Jerusalem. And so this man is lame for 38 years, and Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? And it seems like it's a dumb question. Who wouldn't want to be healed? But let's, let's just assume, I'm going to go out on a limb, and let's just assume that Jesus doesn't ask stupid questions. So there's something going on here that Jesus is driving at with this question that seems ridiculous. Do you want to be healed? And we get a further indication that Jesus has put his finger on something with this particular question because the man actually evades the question. He makes an excuse for himself. He says, I don't have anyone to help me. Everyone always gets ahead of me. I can't do it by myself. So it may have been a strange question, but it's even more strange that this man doesn't just give a straight answer. Yes, I want to be healed. He, he makes this sort of excuse, and he, he sort of goes on with his kind of beggar's routine of feel sorry for me. So there's two things I can think of for the question, and there's two reasons maybe for the evasive answer as well. And the Bible's not explicit on the motive of Jesus entirely in this question, but he asks it here for us to read, and I think there's at least two reasons Jesus might be asking this lame man this question. The first one is that it's been 38 years. And the reality is we can get comfortable in our weakness, even in our crippled state. This is the only life this man knows now. He exists by begging. He, his identity is one who is incapable of being healthy. He's incapable of caring for himself. His identity is one of being the recipient of other people's pity and other people's mercy. And so when Jesus asks him if he wants to get healthy... The man almost brushes it aside as some impossible hope, and he just leans into his daily identity as the helpless one. Pity me. Pity my sad situation. Give me some coins. It's as though he doesn't dare hope or he doesn't want to hope for more. For 38 years, he's adjusted to depending on others and presuming he can never be well, that he's the recipient of mercy rather than the provider of it. And so when Jesus asks him, do you want to be well, Whether it's conscious or subconscious, there is this wrestling about, I don't know any other life except a life of unhealth and brokenness. Because getting healthy can be scary. If you've been sick and crippled and broken for a long time, then getting healthy has implications. Now you care for yourself. Now that you have straight limbs and now that you have strong muscles and stable emotions and clarity of thought and the ability to function, you're expected to use those blessings. As God has given, so we are to give and that can be scary it's, it's like you hear of those sort of career convicts who do a you know a 10 or 12 month stint in prison and they've been inside so long that the outside is scary and they don't know how to live there anymore so they get out of prison after 10 years and they go and immediately commit another crime to get caught so they can get put back into prison because they know how prison works they don't know how freedom works and this is what it can be like when we're broken and when we're sick We can be broken and sick and lame in a lot of different ways for a long time. And when Jesus comes to us and asks that penetrating question, do you want to be healed? It's not a simple answer because we've grown comfortable in our sickness. He offers us this gift and we realize he's going to give us new health and new freedom and it can be as scary as it is desirable. Honestly, do you want to get healthy or do you want to kind of hold on to that weird comfortableness of your old sickness because when I take that old brokenness away, it's going to be gone. Do you really want to be free or do you kind of like the slavery that you're in? Has the Stockholm Syndrome kind of set in? Right? You're in this sort of amiable sort of addiction to the world. You get this sort of comfortable compromise and you don't really want to let it go. I, I, I want some of what you're offering Jesus but not so much that it's going to take me out of my comfort zone. I just want enough Jesus to save me, but not enough to change me, is where we get too often. So maybe that's why Jesus asked him the question. Secondly, there's another reason that Jesus asks and makes it difficult, and he's maybe not sure if he wants it, because if Jesus heals them, then this man's going to have to tell his story. Everyone he knows is going to hear about his encounter with Jesus. They're going to see that he's healed. They're going to see the change in his life. He's going to be walking. Everyone's going to ask him, what happened to you? I saw you last week. You were totally different. You are a new person. What happened? And he's going to have to say that he encountered Jesus and Jesus saved and healed him. And his identity is no longer going to be crippled or depressed or anxious or addict or whatever it was. His new identity is going to be in Jesus and that's going to have implications too. Because as we're going to see in this account, he's going to have to share his story about what happened to him. And he's going to share it with people who may not be thrilled with his new identity. And so Jesus may be asking... Are you ready to be healthy? Are you ready to be free? Are you ready to have a new identity that's forever linked to me? Even though it may cost you old friendships or it may get you into trouble, Jesus is saying, are you ready for this? This is life-changing. So the man's helplessness is a parable of the human condition, and Jesus' question is the question that the gospel of Jesus Christ constantly confronts you and me with. Do you want to get well? Jesus is able to change and transform your life through the forgiveness of sins and through the healing of past hurts, through your repentance, through his mercy and his love, his transforming power. He can change your life. And we are in the place where Jesus delights to do that. He's ready and willing and anxious to change your life this way. But the question he asks is, do you want to be healthy? Because it will change everything. Or are you going to evade the question like this man? I'm not really ready. You don't know what it would cost me. You don't know what it implies. To be really made whole would change so much. You know, many of us want Jesus, but just not so much that it changes us or costs us. So he asks that question very penetratingly. But then Jesus says to him, we don't know everything that transpired since then, but Jesus has maybe made up his mind for him. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And so Jesus essentially says, forget about the water in the pool, just like he said to the woman at the well, forget about the water in the well. The real thing is right here in front of you, so pick up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And now here's where this man has to start to tell his story about who his new identity is in encountering jesus but he answered them and he said the man who healed me that man said to me take up your bed and walk now this part, this part of the account that John tells here is actually kind of comical, right? This is the guy who couldn't walk for 38 years. How could the people of the city, the Jews in Jerusalem, not know who he was? He's been lying by this pool for decades, and he's walking around with his bed, and these righteous Jewish people are not impressed with the fact that he's walking. They are concerned that he's breaking the rabbinical rules about how much weight you're allowed to carry on the Sabbath. So you can imagine how incredulous this man is. He's like, oh, I, you noticed that I was carrying my bedroll. Did you notice I was walking? Did you, that, you missed that part, that I'm actually carrying my bed, not lying on it like I've been for the last 30 years. I mean, these Jews should know by heart the words of Isaiah in chapter 35, where the prophet is describing the coming day of the Lord in Isaiah. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, Isaiah 35 says. These guys know the they know the prophets by heart. And so here we are on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, and they find a lame man leaping, and all they can do is judge him for breaking one of their rules. And so what we see here is that there's bitter opposition, even among Jews, to the grace of the gospel. People want to earn their salvation. You've got to follow rules some way, somehow. It isn't fair that Jesus just saves undeserving people without them doing something for it. And so whole religions are built around trying to qualify ourselves for salvation and by extension then policing people who don't measure up to standards of righteousness. How often do we do this sometimes with people who just encounter Jesus and they've just been healed and they've just been set free by this amazing life-transforming grace of God? Brand new Christian, bounces into the church, ready to tell everyone about his new life in Christ, ready to sing, ready to praise, ready to take up his place in the kingdom. And the guy at the door says, hey, take your hat off. Right? Put on a tie. Where's your Bible? Right? I get it. We may mean well, sort of. But let's be careful what we're focusing on in the lives of people who have been healed and set free by Jesus. Right? It's, it's, it's not about what's going on what's on their head or what clothes they're wearing they've been set free they're 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 telling their story of who jesus is but there's this bitter opposition to the grace of the gospel and so they ask him who is the man who said to you Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was right away, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place, and afterward Jesus found him in the temple. So he'd gone to the temple, which is a good thing to do. He should go to the temple. The law says, if you've been healed, go to the temple, tell the priests. So he's going to the temple, he's actually following the law. Maybe he was feeling bad because the you know the rabbis had just slapped his hand for carrying his his bedroll. So it's like, okay, I better follow the law. Go to the temple. Do it right. So Jesus finds him at the temple and he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. There's two sort of key questions I get out of this. The, the Jews want to know who is this man and what is his identity, which is Jesus is going to reveal shortly. But also, what does Jesus ask of this man who's healed? What, what was the deeper purpose of this? And we, and we see here that Jesus is not simply healing the body of this crippled man by the pool. But that he's also at some point or in some way he's had the same conversation with this man that he had with the paralytic, that he had with the woman at the well, that he had with so many others. Jesus moves the whole conversation from the physical to the spiritual. It's not actually about the water at the well. It's about living water. It's not actually about healing your brokenness in your body. It's about healing your spirit. It's about healing the relationship and reconciling you with God. So he moves from the physical to the spiritual. The real concern of Jesus is spiritual healing. It's freedom from sin. It's living water to escape judgment and be welcome in the kingdom of God. Jesus has set this man free from sin to sin no more and not face the coming judgment, which would be far worse than being crippled for 38 years. He says, don't sin anymore. Your life is transformed. There is a a far worse judgment that you want to avoid than just being crippled. So grace enables us to say yes to Jesus and be able to say no to sin. It doesn't mean that we will be perfect, but we will be loosed day by day, week by week, year by year. We will be set free from old, debilitating, crippling chains that held us down in sin. Just as dramatically as this crippled man being able to walk this living parable that Jesus puts on display for us, so in the same way has Jesus come to set us up spiritually free to choose life, free to choose health, and free to choose healing. This is really what communion we're about to take is about is to say yes again to Jesus and to ask forgiveness for our sins and to trust that His grace is sufficient, to not miss the grace of God like we talked about last week, two weeks ago, and, and 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 to understand that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This man had said yes to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, I want you to go and sin no more. So the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So he went and told everyone that it was Jesus. He's now embraced his new identity. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So we've seen the helplessness of the man's situation. We've seen the unexpectedness and the penetration of Jesus' question. And we've seen the bitterness of G- the Jewish opposition. And now there's the shock of Jesus' revelation as the Messiah. This is why John wrote his book. He wanted people to know that Jesus was doing these things so that they would know that he was God, that they would know that he was the Savior. So Jesus says to the Jews, because you know they're persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, and he says, My father's working until now, and I am working. So Jesus basically replies to them, and he says, God doesn't actually entirely stop working even on the Sabbath, you know. I mean, the planets don't fly off from the sun, right? Everything still works in the universe. He's still sustaining all things. He's still restraining evil. He's still preserving his saints. God is at work even on the Sabbath, and so I am also doing my father's work. But that's not the big problem that they have with Jesus. It's not really about Sabbath breaking with these Jews. It says in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this encounter that Jesus had here with this crippled man by the pool does not end with everybody being excited that Jesus has healed a poor and helpless man. It doesn't even end with the happy revelation that this man has embraced his identity in Christ and is unashamed to testify that Jesus transformed him. That's all true. No, this account ends with the Jewish leaders being even more determined than ever to kill Jesus because they could not stomach how Jesus had defined himself, that he had made himself equal with God. And Jesus knew this is where it would end. This is why Jesus did it, to set the man free, entirely true but also so that people would know that he was the Son of God. Jesus sees a crippled man trapped in his pain, and he knows like he knows with every broken person in history that he heals and sets free, that when he heals that person, it will create a chain of events that ultimately testifies to the world that he is the Son of God. Because that's what we do when we're healed by Jesus. We then testify of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. That's the gospel that Jesus is God and that he heals us. This is what sets Jesus apart from all other people in history and all other religions. It's what sets Jesus apart from every other form of religion. Christianity is not about human works or human merit or human effort or human worthiness in any form or another. This crippled man by the pool had been broken and lame for 38 years. He was surrounded by people just like him. Jesus picked him out of the crowd and said, You are the recipient of my grace. You've done nothing to earn it. In fact, you're avoiding it, but you're getting it anyway. I've hunted you down. My love, my grace, my mercy is upon you. Deal with it. It's not about that. Christianity is not about man following the right rules to condition God's love. While we were yet sinners, God sent his Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We don't condition God's love. There's no set of conditions that we have to keep in order to maintain God's love. Christianity is not about that. It is about the true identity of who Jesus Christ is. He is the son of God. And he has come to give us undeserved grace. And these religious leaders, they can't handle that. And they still can't handle it today. From Hinduism to Islam to Jehovah's Witness, you name it, no matter how far or how near to the historical record of the biblical faith some religion might align itself, unless it acknowledges that Jesus is God, it's not Christianity and it cannot save. Only God can save. Only Jesus can forgive sin. And this drove the Jewish people crazy. Some people think... That Jesus never said this about himself. This is all that Jesus said about himself. John 10, 30 to 33, he says, I and the Father are one. And again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to him, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of those miracles, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you're a mere man claiming to be God. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying he was God. He says to Philip in John 14, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, that that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Remember I said they were a little obtuse as to what was going on? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Romans 1, 3 to 4, it says, The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's declared to be the son of God. Or the, the other way to use that word in the Greek is authenticated, to be the son of God. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is proving and proclaiming that he is every time he heals someone, every time he sets someone free. He's saying, I am who I say I am. This is the gospel. This is the good news at the heart of the Christian faith. This is why John says, I've recorded these things because I want you to know who Jesus is and I'm hoping you will believe in him and trust in him and be saved if I tell you about who he is. Because who Jesus is, is the gospel. It's the good news at the heart of our faith. Jesus heals. Jesus sets free. Jesus transforms. Jesus forgives sins. And Jesus can do this because he's the Son of God. He is God. He's God who entered into our world. It's God who loves us and rescues us in the person of Jesus Christ. We are the lame man by the pool. We are the helpless ones who have nothing to offer and yet Jesus comes into our world, into the mud and the mess of our life and he puts his hope and his grace and his mercy on us. So you may have spent eight years or you may have spent 38 years broken and wounded and considering yourself unworthy of the attention of Jesus. You may be so comfortable in your pain that you can't imagine what life is like apart from your pain. It's become your identity. You may be hearing Jesus ask, do you want to be well? And this can be for Christians too. Because we can let a little bit of Jesus into our life and we cannot let the whole thing go. We can hold on to that pain and we can hold on to that brokenness because we're just not ready to, for the transformation that Jesus is going to bring. And so he's asking, not just non-believers, he's asking believers too, do you really want to be well? And we can be afraid of what true wellness means. But listen, Jesus sees right through your sin. He sees right through your hurt. He's asking this penetrating confrontational question because he wants you to be healed. He wants you to be well. He wants your brokenness to be gone so that you can leap for joy and you can testify to who he is to anybody who asks what happened in your life. He's saying, you need to trust me and know who I am. Know that I'm the Christ. Know that I'm the rescuer. Know that you can be saved. This is the day to say that again or even for the first time. Just say yes to Jesus. Say no to sin and shame and brokenness This is a living parable that John has recorded that Jesus put on display for him. And I have no doubt, like I said, that it completely went over John's head when he saw it happen. Just like Philip didn't know that he had seen the Father already in Jesus. But John records it because he's basically saying, I don't want you to miss what I didn't see. Jesus is here to heal. Say yes to his healing. And that's what communion really is for those of us who know Jesus. It's a chance to come to his table again and say, Yes, I want your healing. Set me free. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this living parable of this crippled man. Don't even know his name, but we're thankful he was there. Thankful for the mercy and the grace of your son that healed him and even more so for his care for his soul, that he would have his relationship with the Father restored. Father, we thank you that this is all put on display for us who are the broken people by the pool, who are unable to get well on our own. We can't drag ourselves into good health again. You have to come and set us free. You have to come and touch us, tell us to pick up our bed and walk. Father, we have to answer that question, do we really want to be healed? So, Father, I just pray that as we come to communion now tonight, I know I've got them. Everybody's got them. We've got those hurts and those regrets and that brokenness that sometimes we wonder whether we'll ever walk without a limp. Lord, I know you want to bring healing even into those places we've hung on to for 38 years and set us free. Pray that you do that tonight in Christ's name. Amen.